Moving Iron Podcast is proud to be part of the Global Ag Network. The network is live, so check out globalagnetwork.com for more details and updates. Now on to the show. Moving Iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving Iron time and time again. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 134. This week my guest is Sean Hackett. If you're listening to the podcast or if you watch any of the videos that we put out there, Sean is a regular guest on Wednesdays and he has a company called Hackett Financial Advisors. So Sean, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Casey. Always enjoy speaking with you here. So the first time I met Sean, uh, he reached out to me and started talking to me about some other phenomenons and those kind of things that were going on and and how the stuff he follows and, and how it might be beneficial to folks who listen to the podcast. And and the more I listened to what he had to say was more was kind of in line with some stuff that that I knew about, not necessarily following or paying attention to, but I, I did I did understand where he was coming from. So Sean, before we get to kind of carried away this was back what first of january into the december something like that that's when it was right that time yeah Yeah. that's when the first time i had you had you on for the for a podcast so um kind of explain to people what you do and then explain to people why a why a financial advisor pays such close attention to to weather extremes and, and what we see happening right now as far as weather goes well i mean our prime focus is we is agricultural markets grain markets soft markets like coffee and cocoa and sugar and livestock markets. And so so our financial advisory is trying to help farmers, producers, and users, you know, manage price volatility to their advantage. And of course, weather is a key component to weather volatility uh, and price volatility. And so the reason why we're so concerned about weather cycles and the sun and is is because we feel that if we're on top of these important changes and we can advise our farmer agricultural customers correctly to make the right decisions because the decisions we feel that you need to be making going forward is going to be somewhat different from the decisions that one would have made under a normal weather cycle and so 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 that's why we're so into this why we've done so much work on it while we are uh, you know, done so much research on it. Why we think it's so important that if those are people are out there watching this podcast, are in the agricultural sector, or or have an interest in agriculture, and are not really aware of these phenomenon or phenomena, you know, it's it's pretty important to get your hands around it and get comfortable with it because it's going to be something you're going to be hearing much much more about. Just like this winter when we started, we've been seeing some very very odd, strange things happening that are really exactly. What's what's going on with some of the weather uh, cycles that we're going to be talking about? So yeah, okay, all right. So now you talk about weather phenomenon. All right, so we're talking about the different things out there right now that are completely one thousand percent affecting the way weather is being is is being charted across across the uh, the world right now. For example, so um, you're all kinds of talk about all kinds of things that are out there, and it ranges from everything from methane from cows all the way through global warming and climate change or whatever whatever term they're using this week to describe that and and so on and so forth but what what is your what's your opinion of what's causing causing the weather patterns that we see now 
there's natural weather phenomenon phenomena that go on that have been going on for hundreds and thousands of years and through tree ring analysis uh, and um, uh, and other analysis that we're able to do now because of technology you know we have a very very good idea of what those repeatable natural cycles are and uh, and and they've always impacted the, the climate the climate's always been changing there's nothing new about the climate changing and so if for if we have credible evidence that for hundreds and thousands of years the climate has been changing naturally and we know the mechanisms why those changes have been occurring, then there's no reason to think that those natural phenomena are not going to be acting in our markets today and changing the weather today as they always have. So, so that's what we, we come from that place, from that space, that natural repeatable cycles of weather uh, are, are impacting our markets and they will continue to impact our markets. And so if we understand what they are, what the cycles mean, where we are in those cycles, then we should have a very good ability to predict what kind of weather we're expecting to see, not only over the next you know few years, but the next few decades. Um, and, and we'll leave the, the methane um, discussion uh, for others because we just don't have any historical data that says any of that means anything. Uh, not yet, at least. So, right, right, okay. So let's talk about some of these some of these cycles that we're in right now. So um, there's there's cycles out there that we talk about all the time, whether it be you know the way that ocean currents flow and and how disruption happens there and how that causes warming and cold uh, warming and cooling along coastal areas, uh, how it affects weather patterns and all those kind of things. But there's uh, there's a big big lighter in the sky called the sun, and that, that 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 controls a lot of the weather that we see happen right now. So, why don't you start there? We're talking about how the sun affects our weather patterns, and and what's happening now with the sun, and, and how that's going to affect the weather patterns we got. Um, there's a very reliable cycle of sunspots with the sun. Every 220 years, the sun goes into a period of low sunspot activity. So so we have what's called a sunspot cycle. It's about 11 to 12 year cycle. We go from low sunspots to high sunspots to low sunspots. It's a cycle and it's a very steady, regular uh, cycle that usually puts out a very consistent solar irradiation that hits the earth. But every 220 years, we get to a period where these, these solar cycles are much lower in amplitude. That means that when we go from the trough to the peak, there's very, very few sunspots at the peak. And what happens is that the total solar radiation hitting the Earth goes way, way down, not just for a few years, but for many decades. Um, Dr. Zarkova, who's a well-known physicist, has done some great, great work as to why does this happen. From her work and work of many other physicists, what happens is that you need to have a high magnetic field strength on the sun to cause sunspots to occur regularly. And then if that magnetic field goes down, the sunspots go down and they will stay down until the magnetic field strength goes back to normal. And what she found out and others have found out is that there are four different magnetic fields that kind of spin around the sun in different resonance frequencies. I mean, they're just spinning at different rates. And there are times when they are uh, constructive, meaning they are on one side or the other side, and that's when you have very good sunspots, good uh, solar radiation, good magnetic field strength, but there's other times when they find themselves on opposite sides of the sun, and when you do that, they cancel each other off, and they lower the magnetic field strength of the sun, 
we can measure this and we can show that the magnetic field strength of the sun is way, way down uh, over the last 10 years. And so we are entering this period where this destructive magnetic field phase is in place. And she went back and used this work to project backwards when all these solar cycles would occur based upon these magnetic fields oscillations. And she nailed every single grand solar cycle that we know actually occurred going back a thousand years with this methodology of measuring these magnetic field strengths. So, so this is not a, uh, you know, we're not like making it up. I mean, we actually have ways to measure this today and go backward and say, is this really a good method? Is this really what's going on? And, and this is really predictive of what's going to be happening in the future. And um, she predicted 10 years ago that we would start entering a low solar cycle period now, um, based upon her work. And we are now seeing clear evidence that solar cycles are way down. And so we are clearly in this phase. And, and once we're in it, uh, according to her work and work of many, that we're not going to get out of this destructive phase for uh, these magnetic fields uh, for another 30 years. I mean, we're going to be in this low solar sunspot activity period for 30 years before we come back out of it and get back to a normal a normal situation. And so, um, so, so that condition means that less solar radiation is going to be entering our atmosphere on a regular basis, and it's cumulative over time, and that dramatically impacts our weather. Uh, when that happens. Okay, so explain the difference between um, a, a low solar cycle and a high solar cycle and, and then how what the difference is between having uh, a lot of sunspot activity is and, and what the difference is between having less solar or less sunspot activity. We have a northern hemisphere, right? We have a southern hemisphere, and the northern hemisphere has a jet stream, and the southern hemisphere has a jet stream. This wind current, upper wind current that flows around the earth and drives all our weather uh, it, it drives everything. Under when we have normal sunspot cycle, normal solar radiation, what's the typical jet stream? Right, is it called zonal flow? It goes from west to east in a nice gradual, you know, amplitude, and it creates very steady, fast-moving weather, very constant. You can get a little variation, but it won't last. You know, won't be. You know, it won't be long-lasting, and it keeps the planet in a, in a very well-balanced environment. When you get into a low sunspot cycle activity, what happens is, is that the lack of solar radiation hitting the atmosphere increases ozone production over the North Pole and the South Pole and reduces ozone production um, on the equatorial sides. And that has the impact of shrinking the tropopause and the stratosphere from the north and south and elongates it from west to east. So if you think about a rubber band, if you have a rubber band around and you compress that rubber band down, it's going to become more loopy, more, more, more compressed. And that causes what we call a meridional jet stream. One that goes from north to south, instead of from west to east, north to south. A very, very undulating around the northern and southern hemisphere. And that produces much more volatile weather. It, it allows cold air from the Arctic and Antarctic region to come into highly populated areas. And it also causes what we call stagnant weather patterns, meaning these weather patterns get stuck in this up and down wind motion and they can't change and we'll just get rain and rain and rain and rain in this particular area and it will not stop 
because we're stuck in this stagnant pattern. Instead of these systems moving away as they, as they would normally do, and or if, if there's a drought, it just stays. So, for example, right now in the Midwest, we are in what we call the rain train. We have this stagnant pattern and the rain's being pumped into the Midwest day after day after day after week. This has been going on since September, and we're still in this relentless wet pattern, and it has not gone away yet. And all indications are it's going to stay with us all the way into the end of May at this point. And the stagnant pattern is very indicative of this kind of a meridional jet stream. The polar vortex that we had two of this year that brought ridiculously cold temperatures, you know, minus 70 degrees in certain places that we hadn't seen before. Um, bomb cyclones, these are all manifestations of this dramatic change in the jet stream flow pattern from normal. Um, it's not like, I mean, you know, you can, any, any weatherman, any climatologist, any meteorologist, you can look at the wind pattern and you can see what it's doing. So that's the biggest impact as to why low solar cycle and low solar radiation in the atmosphere increases our weather volatility and causes colder winters and longer winters uh, because the air from the north, from the Arctic region, continues to flow in much longer than it would otherwise. Uh, so, it's, so it's a big impact, and, and, it, and, and we are clearly seeing that happen right now. All right, so great example. So you look at, so out here where I'm at, we had, we had two um, epic blizzards i mean that were that came through they were all 30 days apart and and a lot of these were blizzards like once in a lifetime style blizzards right you know we had um the first one here was uh we had 20 inches of snow and 40 mile an hour winds um the next one I, we were a little bit more fortunate on but it stayed i mean for me it was more fortunate somebody else got hammered but where i was supposed to be for me it was it was a, it was a little bit it wasn't nearly as bad as the yeah. first one um Explain that. Explain. Okay, so I mean th right. th that the 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 they are both bomb cyclones. They were both that that whole like epically low like high charging low pressures that came through that were similar to a hurricane, a Category One hurricane. So, I mean, how, how does that affect it? And what effect do we see with with the low and the high pressures, the extremes that we see in in those pressures? Well, when when you have a meridional jet stream, Casey, what it means is you have very warm air. It's very cold air, um, and, 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 and they're clashing, constantly clashing. And what a bomb uh, a cyclone really means is you have a, a dramatic drop in pressure over a 24-hour period, meaning that the storm just fires up at a north because when you have these heavy low pressure, heavy high pressure, air masses clashing, it fires up. The storms, I mean, just, and they come out of nowhere and they just, they explode like a hurricane would explode down here, you know, where I live in South Florida. So, so that, that kind of, of dramatic storm escalation is a function of the, of this jet stream, dramatic change in airflow from west to east, from north to south. And, 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 and that's really, you know, uh, 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 you know, not going to be going away so long as we're in this low sunspot cycle period. In fact, what was perceived to be these one or two and 100 year uh, weather events is going to be commonplace now. I mean, we're going to see these over and over again, year after year. It's going to be what we expect to see, not what we're not expecting to see, you know. All right. So I'm assuming that with the way this works, that if there is one extreme on on one side of the planet or in one hemisphere or something like that that there's there's probably the direct opposite is happening on the other side 
right? Or somewhere in that range. So if there's a, where we at right now where we've got some really wet, I mean, the United States right now, you look at the drought map and it's the first time in a long time where we don't really have any drought anywhere in, in North America. Um, but on the flip side of that, there's some epic droughts going on in, um, you know, around the other side of the world. You know, look at Australia and what's happened uh, last summer in uh, the Black Sea regions and those kind of things. So, so talk about that a little bit and how those those adverse effects happen across the world. Well, remember when when you when the jet stream troughs, that's where it's a lot. That's where you get a lot of moisture. That's where it's cold and it's moisture, um, but. On the other side, where you have this part of the jet stream, where it's the, you know, this part, that's where it's hot and dry. So, for example, in Australia, it absolutely 100% was the worst drought since they, they could find any recordings of weather that they've experienced in the last year. I mean, just an absolute devastating drought at a time when we have experienced some, the wettest September through May, you know, through April period in our country's history since we've been recording data. So you're right. There's a yin and a yang to this where it can, it's cold and wet. There's also hot and dry. So it's not exclusive. It's all cold or it's all hot. It's, it's really volatile. And that's the point I want to continue to try to make is it's volatile. And what happens is that all of a sudden though, the jet stream will move to the right a little bit or move to the left a little bit. And what happens is all of a sudden where it was wet, it's not hot and dry. And where it was dry, it's not hot and wet. So, for example, in Australia, after this horrific drought, they had a, a one in one hundred year flood. Right, I saw that. Yeah, in, in yeah. areas where just unbelievable rains, where they had the worst drought in hundred years, they had the worst flood in hundred years because the jet stream modulated a little bit and they got caught on the other side of the meridional airflow. So, this is the crazy nature of this kind of a weather pattern. Is you know, if you don't. It's not. It, it can change really, really fast, but there is no gray area anymore. It's extreme. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me, and I'm not forecasting this because you know the, the gesture moving left or right. You know, there's other factors that go into it, but it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere in the summer we might turn hot and dry in the Midwest after all this rain. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me that we also we get that, and everybody would wondering how does this happen? You know, where we go from this epic rain to all of a sudden this. You know, maybe it's a, the hottest, driest August we've had on record. I'm, I'm not projecting. I'm saying it wouldn't surprise me if we saw that. You know. All right. So when we were talking before we came on here, and we were talking about this. You mentioned two other cycles that were normally these three cycles kind of happen at three distinct different times, but they're all kind of coming together. So talk about those cycles and what you see there. Right. Well, the, the grand solar cycle is 220 years. We get this phenomenon we've been talking about. There's something called the Gleisberg cycle that's named after famous physicist called Dr. Gleisberg. And he did work that suggested that uh, the sun actually will, is not constant in terms of its radius. It will expand and contract based upon how the planets rotate around it. Um, and that every 88 to 90 years, it will contract to its maximum lowest radius. And when, what that means is if the sun is just smaller in its radius, there's less solar radiation hitting the atmosphere. So, so we have this grand solar cycle. It means less sun hitting the atmosphere. We have an 88 to 90 year Gleisberg cycle that is kicking in in 2022 to 2025 is that next part of the cycle showing that the sun's going to be at its maximum low radius, saying even less sun's going to be hitting the atmosphere. 
And he did some incredible work that showed that every 88 to 90 years, you will get a historic one in 100 year drought in the Midwest. So, for example, 1845 was the one in 100 year drought we had in the 1800s in the Midwest. If you go forward 88 to 90 years, it suggested the next one would be 1933, 1935, as we know, that moved right into the Dust Bowl. What what was the one in 100 year drought we had in the 1900s? We move 88 to 90 years from there. It suggests 2022, 23, and 2025 is the next. This should be our one in 100 year drought for the 2000s. And they went, and he went back, and others went back and did tree ring analysis, where you can show how much a tree grew in one year, how much it didn't grow in one year, and they can actually take those the the thickness of growth and and be able to tell you how much rain fell or didn't fall. And they can do that. They've done that. They can do this going out a thousand years and go over exactly when these epic droughts occurred uh, with trees that they have uh, done this analysis with in the Midwest. And this cycle, this Gleisberg cycle, has been working every single century going back as far as these tree rings will let us go. It's just remarkable. Um, and, it, and it just so happens that that cycle is up right here over the next five years, just as we're in this grand solar cycle minimum. So it's a second cycle that says sun, less data radiation, and an extra weather volatility event in drought cycle. Um, and, and, and like I said, there's lots of papers. You can read his paper that he did, other studies that kind of confirmed his work. But it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating cycle that is repeating right now. Or just about to repeat. Okay. So, so if I'm understanding that correctly, then if we if we're looking at what we're we're seeing here, where <clears throat> the dips in jet stream and and the dips that we see happening in uh, or the the low pressures and and the Arctic air and those kind of things that are coming out, we could just have a a, a prolonged winter that really there's no moisture that comes from it. So it's just a uh, a long winter that's just a dry drought and then we roll into a um a, a, a summer period that that doesn't really bring the spring rains that we would anticipate and those kind of things correct well yeah i mean just think exactly opposite of this year where the jet stream is that we're that the midwest is over the up part of the jet stream not the down part we've been involved in the down part this whole period and we've getting all this rain and all this moisture and all this cold but what if we modulated to the right a little bit and got stuck in a pattern where we're in the up part where it's just dry and there's and it's stagnant and it sits there and nothing is coming in and nothing's coming in. That's what how you get a one one hundred year drought. There's just nothing that comes in. And, uh, so that that is exactly what would that would be the setup for this Gleisberg cycle. It would be one of those patterns to develop exactly opposite of what we're seeing this year. Okay. All right. So, I mean, I'm sure some people are sitting right now but that we've been talking now for about 23 minutes. And I'm sure there's some people going like, man, if this is such a, a trackable thing and this is such a provable scientific fact and this, that, and the other thing, when I watch the Weather Channel, they don't talk anything about any of this. And all they do is talk about the latest forecast and, and how, a, you know, this the dip in the, wet, the jet stream and then say anything about the sun causing any of this. It's, I mean, I hear that a lot. And, I, you know, I... I'm I'm pretty familiar with what you're talking about. So, explain that a little bit, and and what what is the where's the disconnect at in in the quote unquote experts and in, in in understanding what's going on here. Well, I mean, look, I mean, you know, I, I the Weather Channel or your local Weather Channel stations and all those sort of things. I mean, look, they 
their job is to maximize people watching them. I mean, I mean, it's nothing against them. I mean, their job is, you know, they want, they need to put content out that people want to watch. And what people want to watch is what's the, what's the weather going to be today and tomorrow and maybe next week. That's what people want to know. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make plans for the next week. I'm interested in what you think the weather's going to do next week so I can make my plans. That's what I'm interested in. Um, I don't think if they went through uh, a long discussion of solar cycle uh, every day or every week that, you know, that, that, that they would get the kind of audience that they would want to see or that their advertisers would want to see. And so I think just by a, a fact of what people are wanting to watch, you know, they're not demanding that they, that they get this kind of, of, of information or this kind of content. Um, and so as a result, they don't talk about it because, you know, that's not really what drives the station. You know, the station has to stay in business. They need to make money. They need to stay uh, current and they need, to keep, they need to keep their viewership up. And I think that drives it more than anything else is, is just the business of, of weather stations, of, of news stations and how they operate and how they stay alive. Okay, so what, with all the stuff that we've talked about here, I mean, we're talking uh, a twenty or thirty year cycle that we're seeing here, right? This is this is how long this is going to last. So, what does that mean? What's that mean for you know corn production? What's that mean for soybeans? What's that mean for cattle? I mean, how how does all that tie into what we're talking about here? The most important trend um, from all of this is that the growing seasons are going to continue to get contract. It, this is the, the of all we've just said. The most the biggest takeaway is that our summer growing seasons are going to get shorter duration. The winters are going to be longer, but, uh, and the growing seasons are going to be shorter. And, and, and overall, we're going to be in a cooler environment than we've been accustomed to. And so when you think about you know, reducing the growing season by 20 or 30% and having less heating degree units, your ability to grow corn in Illinois at 280 bushel to the acre or 300 bushel to the acre like they're doing now becomes very challenging. And so I think that's really – so, for example, in something like livestock, you asked about cattle, right? One of the big problems this year is we have a huge hay shortage. There's a, there's, there's, the hay shortage is as bad as we've ever seen it because of the adverse weather we've had across the country. You know, nobody had, there's, been, there's been huge disruption in the normal hay cycle. How many cuts did they get? What was the quality when they did cut it? Um, and, and so everyone is, is scrounging around trying to figure out how they're going to cover their hay needs at a time of maximum shortage. So, so the answer to your question is, is that, that, that production is going to be under a lot of pressure. It doesn't mean we can't have a good year, by the way. It doesn't mean every year has got to be bad, but it means in general, we're going to struggle to produce like we have. You know? With, it, with the, everything shrinking and everything getting tighter, then if, if we're looking at a typical you know, 110-day growing season for corn or um, you know, even some, some short season stuff, you know, some 90-day corn or something like that, um, I mean, at what point are we going to hit that? Is is I guess what I'm asking is, is a cycle going to be, are we talking about cycles that are one year, every, you know, we have two years, three years of, of this kind of colder air, colder, wet type of stuff that we're seeing happening now, and then a couple of years of this epic drought type stuff. I mean, is that is that kind of what we're going to be talking about seeing to where, you know, either you're so dry that you can't grow anything, or or it's just the 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 way that the winter is flowing into everything that it, you you're gonna have a hard time a getting the crop in during the 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 planting window, so you can reach pollination at the at the right time of the year, or or b is it is it going to be something along the lines of just 
drought and nothing will happen. I mean, it's just you can't grow anything. I mean, help, help me understand what that means. Well, I mean, in the in the normal weather cycle, it's the, the, the weird weather is unusual. The good weather is normal. In this scenario, the good weather is unusual. The bad weather is usual. And, and, and um, more so, it's going to mean late planting problems like we're seeing this year. Um, harvesting problems. People, you know, we, we, we don't think about this, but, you know, uh, as the season shortens up, frost risk at the end of the season is going to become a more and more of a problem that, you know, we, we don't even think about that in, in the normal weather environment very often, but we're going to be thinking more and more about it, that frost risk and frost damage that's going to happen before we get to, to harvest time. And so all this is going to cause, you know, problems with truncating not only the growing season, but making planting and harvest season even more problematic and, and, and lowering the quality of the crop. So you may you may harvest some corn, but the quality of that corn isn't going to be what we've been accustomed to. And if you have low quality corn, you know animals need to feed, eat even more of it in order to get, you know, put the weight on and you know and dairy produce the milk that's supposed to produce. I mean it's it's really uh, quality is sometimes just as important as yield. If you if if you don't have it, at least for the livestock business, so so that's kind of what, you know, what we're, we're looking at. And the other thing is that there's certain places that are not going to be able to grow. Period. You know, I I, I mean, we look at Canada for example, and, and we really worry about how much grain they're going to be able to produce up there um, with the kind of growing season that we think they're facing. Canada's going to you know. Their production is going to be very, very sparse um, as we move further in. Not necessarily next five years. I mean, but I'm talking about if we're looking 10, 20 years, I mean, Canada production is going to really be very, very small, very, very minimal because their growing season is going to be, you know, a month. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe, maybe two if they're lucky, but I mean, maybe, you know, it's, it's really problematic for Canadian agriculture, for Canadian ground. Um, and it's, it's, so when we look at like farmland price and we look at, you know, what are the trends in farmland prices? It's going to be a, a thing of the haves and the have nots. If you have right. central to Southern ground that you can grow on, even though you're going to have challenges boy, that, that the land prices for that, for that ground is going to go absolutely ballistic. And the ground that you have in, let's say the Northern tier in Canada, it's going to be almost worthless because you're not going to be able to produce consistent yield and, and, and grain on it or or crops on it so so you know we really think hard about you know how is a you know, when you're thinking about this huge asset that somebody owns this ground this farmland that they that they have as an asset that the bank looks at and, and how to manage that you know we'd be really concerned about a northern tier farmland at this point in terms of what the long-term trends will be for the value of that versus the value of let's say you know texas ground or nebraska uh, you know let's say nebraska down ground we think is going to be okay but anything you know, north dakota south dakota minnesota you know shoot it's going to be uh very difficult we think gotcha so okay so it means like countries like brazil um continents like africa um all across anywhere along the uh, equator that which oddly enough is some of the less produced or less um, infrastructure that you can think of. I mean, when you start looking at roads and, and grain bins and, and, and distribution centers and, you know, export center, export uh, ports and those kind of things. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done here that that's really moving off of slow. It is. And, and when we do look at past grand solar cycles, 
you're correct. Brazil and Africa are two of the places that have the best outlook for maintaining high quality good production. Um, but we're going to need the price to go up a lot for them to get the money <laughs> to build the infrastructure and the roads, you know, and, and the ability to move this great. So if, if Brazil is going to be the, the, the area that's going to feed the world or attempt to feed the world, and they're going to increase the production at a time everyone else is having trouble, they can't do it right now. You know, they can produce it, but they're not going to be able to deliver it to the marketplace. So the only way I know to, to get that going is you need to get grain prices up a lot so that the farmer's making a bunch of money and that capital and investment can go in there and start, you know, there's a money reason to build these roads and to make this infrastructure happen uh, so that they can deliver more and more food and increase the port size, the throughput through the ports and, and all the things that would bottleneck it up right, right now if they had to do that. So, you know, unfortunately, price precedes investment. Um, so for what happens in the beginning is price goes up a lot and it takes time. You just don't snap your fingers and create all this infrastructure. Price go up a lot, stay high for a while. And then five years, 10 years later, you finally get the infrastructure going and then you start delivering you know, more food to the marketplace. So there's a, there's a delay and that's the problem. We haven't made those investments. So it's going to be very painful the first 10 years of this process. All right. So there, there's one of these events that I, that I know about and I've, studied a little bit of and and learned about it in college and and then was fascinated by it and, and read a few books and, and read some articles and those kind of things about it and it was called the dalton minimum and that was uh that really affected the um like western europe was was really that was really a, a big spot that that took place in they were talking about you know in southern europe where they grow all the grapes for for wine and those kind of things that it was um the growing cycle was was small enough and short enough that they had a hard time producing grapes for wine and and they actually had to go out and find different varieties from northern parts of of france and in england and those kind of areas to where they could grow those kind of things and bring them down there but it was it was you know talking about blizzards happening in um late may um and or you know end of september with with some really big snows that would come through and some really cold air um is that is that kind of what what I mean? Is that a similar situation as to what we could look forward to? Well, I mean that uh, that was the the last grand solar cycle was the Dalton minimum. The one before that was called the Maunder minimum. Uh, the Maunder minimum was a more severe case uh, to the Dalton, meaning that the magnetic fields that we talked about at the beginning of our program were more destructive in the Maunder minimum. I mean, there was a longer period of low sunspots than in the Dalton where it was not quite as destructive. Uh, so the answer would be, what are we heading into? Are we heading into a Dalton? Are we heading into, I want to remember Dalton was f- about 40, 50 years. Maunder was almost a hundred, 80 to a hundred years uh, was, was the Maunder. Um, so the, the, from, from the work that many physicists have done, including Zarkova did, um, suggest that we're going into something in between. It's not going to be an 80 to 100 year event. It's going to be more like the, but not, it's more like 30, 40 year event. Um, but it is going to be worse than the Dalton in terms of its, the, this, the, the magnetic fields are going to be more destructive. And so the, the impact is going to, there's going to be impacts as bad as the Maunder minimum, but it's not going to be as long as the Maunder minimum. So what I, what I say is it's going to be a short, sweet Maunder minimum instead of a, uh, a, a long Maunder or a longer, milder 
Dalton minimum. So the conditions that you refer to in Europe that we saw, we would expect at least those conditions, but probably worse um, for, for a little while uh, because we're going to have this period from 2029 to 2039, according to the work of Zarkova and others, we're going to have a complete, the, the, the magnetic fields are going to be completely destructive, meaning exactly on the opposite side of each other. Uh, during that 10-year period where there's going to be no sunspots occurring for that 10-year period. That's the period that will be what, what we would call Maunder-like. Um, and that's where we see the worst of the worst. So the, the 10 years leading into that is going to be more like Dalton. Those 10 years are going to be more like Maunder. And the 10 years after that is going to be more like Dalton. So it's going to be a little bit of both. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, it's going to be a little bit of both in that regard. But, but the first, this next 10 years, though, it's going to be like Dalton like you just mentioned, and that's the kind of conditions we would expect to see in Europe over the next 10 years. I could explain why China has, whatever it is, 30 years worth of rice stored up and, and uh, you know, whatever it is they have for corn stored up. I mean, they have like five years worth of corn stored up or something like that. So, that, I mean, that's another thing you can look back to as well is that if there's any one country that has historically been able to track what happens, you know, if you look at at Chinese dynasties, they last between two and 300 years and they collapse and the next one kind of pops up. And there is a bit of a correlation between this phenomenon and, and what you see happening with the, with the, with the, the rise and fall of China, Chinese dynasties. Repeatedly. I mean, they, some of the best solar work that we've come across comes out of China. Um, and they also did tree ring analysis uh, from trees in China and, and, and kind of verified the modulation of the solar minimum exactly when these dynasties collapsed because the people couldn't eat, they were starving to death. And when people starve to death, they get really angry. And they, they say, yeah, they say, you're the reason why, you know, we're in trouble. So it, it, you have to believe that they absolutely positively know we're entering into one of these. And for them to stockpile rice and wheat and corn, and then even consider a trade deal where they might buy even more, that they are preparing. They're, in their view, they're going to not, they're going to try not to not make the mistake uh, this time, like they've done so many times in the past, and that they will have an ability to get through a long period of poor production with food on hand. And so, uh, you know, the, and we, can, we can't really come up with another explanation why they would do this unless, unless you're, they're completely stupid, which we don't believe that they are, you know. Kind of hard to believe that. All right, so I guess I, guess I need to start looking at, uh, I mean, how, how, is, how are you going to, in the United States, how would you prepare for something like this? I mean, what would be, what would be some, some steps that we need to take and some, some things we need to look at, some technology that need, we need to develop? I mean, what, what, it, what is it that we need to be looking at right now to, to kind of head this off a little bit? Well, I mean, we, we think that, you know, one of the things that um, will help produce enough food, at least for our country, would be, you know, indoor farming. Um, we look at venture capital. Venture capital are people that look out 20, 30, 40 years uh, what's coming, and they put big money into startups, and they're, you know, they don't do that lightly. Uh, they do that doing a tremendous amount of research, and, and they've been pouring money into indoor farming over the last year and a half. They've poured, I believe it's $2.5 billion have gone into indoor farming, hydroponics, vertical farming, you know, it goes by a lot of different names, but, you know, they obviously see something coming with this. And I am sure they've done some work on grand solar cycle. I mean, I'm sure we're not the only ones that are, have done some of this research. And for them to all of a sudden pour money into this sector of growing food inside, we can grow yields at 100 times 
an a you can an acre from outside and and taking the weather out of it i mean there has to be a a reason why they're deciding to do this at this time and so we think that's one very important solution uh that will help alleviate some of the uh, humanitarian consequences for the U.S. in terms of vegetables and, and things that would be really important to keep on hand during time where maybe our outdoor crops are not doing so well. So, so we think that's one thing. The other thing that we think about is we're going to have, and once in a while, we're going to have a good year. I mean, I don't want anyone to think about that. It's never that we, we can't ever have a good growing season. I mean, you, you will have a good year. It's very, very important that in the good year, you store as much of the grain as much of the of your crops as you can in reliable storage that can withstand you know lots of weather volatility so for example all the all the grain that got spoiled this year because the with the grain bins weren't structured to be able to handle this this kind of weather and and the grain is not usable um you know is, is not something that really you know we're gonna need to do something about that that infrastructure needs to be improved so that when we store a big good crop for the rainy day that that crop can stay good and can be protected from future weather volatility so that we you know if we grow two years with a corn in one year we have it for the next year that's going to be bad we're gonna have to really manage this very very differently than we've been doing before where it's just in time inventory we sell what we have and everybody's fine because we know we're always going to have a good crop the next year you know well, Sean, I love talking about this kind of stuff. This is one of those things that I <clears throat> that I really enjoy doing, and I, I pay attention to, and I've always been kind of a bit of a nerd when it comes to to, to tracking weather patterns and those kind of things. So, um, you know, every Wednesday, I, they can everyone can hear you here on the Moving Iron Podcast, but you're on a several other locations as well. And, and what's the best way for for people to to either hear your hear your stuff or read what you have, or or maybe see you on uh, on some other program? Um, I mean, our website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, advisors.com. We do post a lot of our interviews, uh, webinars, um, podcasts that we do that we go over some of this work. You also can download a white paper of our smart money indicator that we use for uh, for measuring capital flows into uh, futures markets. And uh, and they can also look at a sample report of, that we put out to, uh, to customers uh, to see if what we do of our analysis of our approach might be something of value to them right going on. forward so all right sean well hey good stuff uh we'll talk to you again here on wednesday but till then have yourself a good weekend we'll talk to you next week sounds good casey really appreciate the time and, and it's been a great discussion Thanks for listening to this edition of the Moving Iron Podcast, now part of the Global Ag Network. If you'd like to continue any of these conversations, you can hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. You can also send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com. You can also visit the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel and watch Market Roundup with Chip Nellinger, Sean Hackett, and Angie Setzer. Also, Tax Moves with Glenn Birnbaum. Please visit movingironllc.com. Here you can find information, details, and updates for the 2019 Moving Iron Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and GlobalAgNetwork.com. So until next time, let's go move some iron. This is Casey Seymour, out. Moving iron in the 21st century.